even if we're able to delay the onset by, let's say, five years, by addressing all of these risk factors, that's five years of a better life, a fuller life, let's say, for patients living with dementia. That's five years of less stress on caregivers, and that's five years less impact on the healthcare system. Delaying is a great goal. Preventing would be even better. Treatment would be probably even better than that. But let's take the opportunities we have right now. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Jay Ingram, author, broadcaster, and public speaker, who is the national spokesperson for the Public Health Agency of Canada's campaign to educate us about dementia risk factors. We'll chat with Jay Ingram when Today in BC continues. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. Thanks for joining us today, Jay. Hey, pleasure to be here. You've written 17 books, including a book on aging and Alzheimer's disease entitled The End of Memory. In this podcast, we're going to talk about risk factors and early detection and prevention. But first, I wanted to ask you about the numbers. British Columbia has an aging population, and I wonder if you could give us an idea of how many diagnosed cases of dementia are we talking about in British Columbia? And of course, we should say that British Columbia is not unique in Canada for sure, the world for that matter. Peter, I think the most reliable numbers are that from 2019 is that 62,000 people living with dementia in British Columbia, 12,000 of those had been diagnosed in the previous year, which sounds like a lot, right? It's 20% of the total. But that shouldn't be surprising because we all, every province in the country has an aging population. And the biggest risk factor, the one that you really can't do anything about, is age. And so it's not surprising that the numbers are going up, even though, and this is an important point, the rate, the incidence of Alzheimer's particularly, but also of other dementias, is slowing a little bit, suggesting that we're doing some things right to either delay or prevent cases. But The baby boom generation is so large and getting into the susceptible ages that at least for the foreseeable future, the numbers will continue to rise. That was actually my next question. Is it simply the fact that people are living longer now than they did 50 years ago that's bringing all of this into the spotlight? Yes. And for those of us old enough to remember the numbers weren't anything like this, if you go back to, say, the 1950s, Many people who would have been susceptible to dementia were dying of cancer and heart disease. And now that we've made inroads in both of those conditions, allowing people to live much longer, um, the issue is the neurodegenerative diseases, including ALS, Parkinson's, and all the dementias start to appear because many of the people who have those now might not have lived that long 50 years ago. What motivated you to write the book about dementia? I've convinced myself that it was really that there's so much interesting science going on around Alzheimer's and the other dementias, 
controversial science. And I tell everyone, my mother died living with dementia, and she had three sisters. They all had dementia. My father-in-law had dementia. My mother-in-law had dementia. So it's not like I haven't been exposed to it. But I think we're all in that boat. I'd be shocked if there was actually a person who has never come into contact with a person living with dementia. It's an issue for all of us. Obviously, seeing my mother living with dementia and the stress that that imposed on my father when he was 96 years old was caring for his 94-year-old wife. And it just illuminated for me also the issue of the burden on caregivers. It's absolutely extraordinary. And those people are, whether they're professional or family members or just friends, they're heroes. Can you explain to us exactly what dementia is and how it affects the brain? It's more complicated than I'm sure you would like me to get into. But generally what happens, and I'll focus on Alzheimer's because it is 70 to 75% of all dementias and the most important and the one we're most familiar with. And I have to hedge a little bit here because there's, as I mentioned, there's a lot of controversy, but generally what happens is that with time, the brain, let's say, starts to fail. Connections are lost. The synapses, the connections between neurons break down. Everybody I think is fairly familiar with memory is the first thing to go and the area of the brain, the hippocampus, that is really a central sort of switching station for memory starts to lose connections and then lose actual neurons. What causes this gradual and then not so gradual loss is still a little bit of a mystery. There, there is an accumulation of proteins in the brain, two kinds, that Alzheimer himself discovered more than 100 years ago and named them as plaques and tangles two different kinds of deposits, start to proliferate in the brain. They are linked to the gradual failure of the brain, but the exact mechanism is still unclear. And there are lots of scientists today who would argue that, yeah, plaques and tangles, they are somehow involved, but we think there are other factors. One of the reasons there's controversy like that is that many clinical trials of drugs aimed at reducing the number of plaques and tangles have failed. And some of them fail in a really interesting way in that they actually do what they're supposed to do, reduce the number of plaques, say, but the loss of cognitive ability, the growing dementia continues. That makes people think it can't just be plaques. Those people who believe it it is plaque, say we didn't give the drugs early enough. And the latest in this controversy is that late last year, the FDA in the States approved sequentially first one and then another drug that does attack plaques, the stuff that makes them up, you know, which you'd think would be a fantastic advance. But these drugs have pretty minimal effects. They don't all help everybody that has participated in the clinical trials so far, and they have some pretty serious side effects. So I take from that, I think that we're on the verge of effective treatments, but we're not there yet. In your research of the book, you probably ran across lots of information and misinformation about dementia. What are some of the common misconceptions that you've run across? 
The favorite one, and this was when I was doing quirks and quarks in the 1980s, was that aluminum was a causative factor. So don't ever boil rhubarb in your aluminum pot. You'll get dementia. Oh, and don't use aluminum-based deodorants. There's nothing, there's no reason to think that aluminum is a factor. If you go online, you can probably find cures for Alzheimer's, which I'll tell you right now, don't work. You know, coconut oil is one. So there are lots of diet. Good diet is helpful, but there's no particular diet. First of all, there's nothing that cures dementia, nothing that anybody has ever seen. Whether you can slow the development or delay it or have some positive impact like that is true, but you have to be very careful about what you label as helpful and what you don't. In the book, what caught my attention was you mentioned that some people have a genetic predisposition to dementia. Can you expand on that for us? Yeah, and Peter, I think this is really important because I've given lots of talks to audiences about Alzheimer's disease, and it seems that the prevalent opinion is whatever risk I have is because I had an aunt who had it or my grandparents had dementia. I should be struck dumb with fear if that were actually true. The thing is, there are some types of Alzheimer's that are actually caused by having a gene that you inherit. But these are always early onset. So instead of getting it when you're 75, you get it in your 50s or maybe even earlier. And they represent about one to one and a half percent of all cases. So most of the people who would ask me, my mother started to show symptoms when she was 85, am I going to get it? She might have had some genes that she passed on to you that might elevate your risk, but elevating your risk and dictating that you're going to get it are two completely different things. And the fact that your genetics might elevate your risk simply puts into focus what we're going to get to in this interview, which is there are also things you can do to reduce risk. And so when you have that opportunity, even if you're carrying a gene that raises your risk, surely it's the right thing to do to exercise your power to modify other risks. Interesting. So how do we distinguish from what might be early memory loss associated with Alzheimer's and simply not being as sharp as a tech as we once were, like having trouble remembering names? Maybe it's taking a little longer to get that answer on Jeopardy? It's a good question. In my experience, all those things. The most comforting thing I read lately was, it's no wonder as you get older that you have difficulty with memory retrieval, picking that name. Who was the lead singer of that rock group in the 60s? When you're older, you just have taken in so much information over your life. This was the argument anyway, that it's not surprising that sorting through it and actually arriving at what you're looking for is a little trickier than it used to be. And declining memory in many cases is something that does accompany aging and doesn't signify dementia. But if your memory loss gets to the point where you're, and I'm hesitant to give examples because I don't know the tests exactly, but let's say you start putting your car keys in the fridge or something like that, where it's not just memory, it's a little bit of disorientation as well. There are tests that you can take that show whether, for instance, you have something called mild cognitive impairment, which is just what it says. It is an impairment, but it's mild. It may go on to dementia, 
it may not. I think that if people feel a family member is really struggling and is having difficulty, it might be worth getting that tested. Although, as I say, there are strategies you can use, but there's certainly no treatments that can halt a gradual loss of memory. You mentioned at the outset that there was different types of dementia. What are the most common ones and how do they differ from each other? There's a handful. So Alzheimer's being the best known. Another one that's relatively, and again, when I say relatively common, start with the understanding that Alzheimer's is 75% of all of them. Then there's vascular dementia, results from inadequate blood flow in the brain, probably for a number of reasons. Vascular dementia and Alzheimer's can coexist. They do quite often. So the person is living with two kinds of dementia. There is Lewy body disease. There's frontotemporal dementia, which former Premier of Alberta, Ralph Klein, had. There's a prion disease, which is a whole other interview called Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, that is a dementia. And so you really have a cluster of them. The symptoms are sometimes distinguishable. An expert neurologist would be able to tell you that's Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, that's not Alzheimer's. And the areas of the brain are different as well. So sometimes speech and production and the understanding of speech is affected in a way that Alzheimer's is primarily memory at first. So there's a sort of galaxy of symptoms that vary with each one, but there are no treatments for any of these. While you were researching your book, perhaps you ran across some stories or personal experience that particularly stand out that you'd like to share with us? The story that I'd like to share doesn't have directly so much to do with the actual experience of dementia, but it was my mother's situation. She'd been living with dementia for quite a while. She was in a nursing home. They were in their mid-90s, living in Kelowna, where they had spent most of their lives in Winnipeg and Edmonton. And most of my dad's friends had died anyway, so it was really up to him. And I just was struck by the incredible stress on him as a really aged man going to a nursing home. When he would arrive, he'd be looking for any tiny sign that she knew who he was, that she was happy, that she was okay. Even a flicker of her eyes or a movement of her mouth, he would interpret that as that was a smile this is a good day. It wasn't that he was irrational. It was the pressure, the, the stress was just so great that anything that he could grab onto that was a positive note, he would take away. That's why when I talk about this, I always have caregiving in the back of my mind. It's never easy. There's a growing awareness of how to be a caregiver. So for instance, I'll give you a story. I didn't actually personally experience it, a son goes to see his mother in a nursing home. She's living with dementia. And she tells a story about how out in the lawn outside her window that morning, there had been leprechauns running around dressed as the traditional leprechaun would be. Now, many people would say, oh, there's no leprechauns here. You were just seeing things. Why would you ever say that? Because you're not going to placate or make the person living with dementia happy. You're going to upset them because you're telling them that something you are sure you saw and have just described didn't happen. Instead, the story I heard was 
the son said, how many were there? And she said, oh, I don't know. I think maybe a dozen, a conversation. And so I've always said to my kids, because they had to deal with grandparents with dementia, the goal of visiting someone with dementia is that you leave them happier when you left, when you leave, than they were when you arrived. And it doesn't matter whether you play along with hallucinations or delusions or mistaken impressions, whatever. The goal is to make them comfortable and happy. When Today in BC continues, Jay Ingram talks about risk factors for developing Alzheimer's and healthy behaviors that can help reduce the risk of dementia. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Jay, I understand there are 12 risk factors that you've written about that could have an impact on something like 40% of the cases of dementia around the world. What are the 12 risk factors? Let me give you just a very short background of these because they are being relied upon around the world. And the medical journal in the UK, The Lancet, has created a set of commissions where they bring together numerous scientists to address a topic. In 2017, they issued the first Lancet Commission on Dementia, and then again in 2020. And each time they identified risk factors that you can do something about. So let's just very quickly say age and genetics. I've already said genetics isn't as all-powerful as most people think, but nonetheless, it can be a factor. You can't change your genetics. That might be possible in a relatively near future, but not now, certainly can't change your age. So the 12, and it's a bit unwieldy to go through a list of 12, so I'll try and group them a little bit. There are some medical issues one should attend to that are risks for dementia. High blood pressure, particularly important. And that's something that even if you're 30 years old and you suspect you have high blood pressure, I would urge you, it's also responsible for other health issues to monitor it and deal with it. You can deal with it sometimes with exercise, sometimes with diet, sometimes with medication. So high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes. These are all risks that do have some medical treatments for. The one that is sometimes upsetting to audiences where you know most of people in the audience are around 60 or above is how long you stayed in school. Sounds surprising. It actually sounds unbelievable. Whatever I did when I was 12 influenced me getting dementia when I'm 80. The research is really robust, and it's hard to put a number of you stay in school till 17. Is that all you need to do? But it's absolutely true that if one left school at age 12, you are increasing your risk. What is thought to be at the basis of this is to be conservative. 10 to 17 years of age, your brain is developing rapidly and changing rapidly and not only forming new connections, but actually getting rid of old ones that that maybe aren't as useful. 
And so when you put on top of that, the relative intensity of education, you're actually being encouraged, if not forced to learn. That's some sort of magical combination that is very hard to replicate later in life. When I tell an older person, I'm sorry to say, but one of the big risks is how far you went in school and you're not in school now and haven't been for decades. The response usually is I do crossword puzzles and Sudoku and Wordle and all those things. And I would say the evidence isn't there yet to suggest those can replace education. And I think part of the reason is the 60-year-old brain, while it can form new connections, it doesn't do it as quickly and easily as it as the brain did when it was 12. And it's not clear that doing those recreational challenging activities is quite the same. Early education is a big risk. All I can say to people is if you have children or grandchildren, do your best to make sure and encourage your local government, in fact, to ensure that there's good education available for all. Another risk that I have that almost as important as early education is hearing loss. And this comes as a surprise to some people, many people, because it isn't obvious what that connection would be. But the data is clear. I wear hearing aids, so I'm taking one step toward mitigating that risk. And it does look like the hearing loss risk is reduced if you wear hearing aids. What is interesting is why would hearing loss predispose you to dementia? And I think most people believe it reduces your social circle. You can try to prevent hearing loss by wearing earplugs, wearing hearing aids. That social life is very important. Fitness is very important as well. So when you get to be 60 plus, those become two of the most important. Maintain your social circle, maintain your fitness, Go walking with some friends every day. That's a beautiful combination. Traumatic brain injury predisposes you to dementia. Air pollution does. That's described as a modifiable risk, but it's a little much to ask people to, oh, you live in an area that's highly polluted, move. That's just not really practical. Tobacco smoking probably has a similar causative factor to air pollution, small particulate matter. Alcohol, as everybody knows, the recommendations were recently reduced to something like two drinks a week. I have not seen a comparable reduction in terms of risk for dementia. It would be certainly no more than one drink a day and probably more like three to five a week. Depression should have grouped that with the medically treatable risks, but I think we've covered pretty much all of them. And what you said in introducing this topic, that 40% of dementia could be dramatically reduced if people dealt with these 12 risks. I don't think most people realize that you can reduce your risk for dementia. I think they see it as a genetic aging thing, and they're not incorrect. Those are factors, but 40% is huge. So that's why Public Health Agency of Canada has sought to inform Canadians of that. Is there a role for technology here in the future in dementia yes, care and research? Very much. There are many ways to deal with this, but I would take like hearing aids as a simple example. Another risk that hasn't made the official Lancet list of 12, but I've seen Alzheimer's researchers 
comment that they expected on publication by them is cataract surgery. There's pretty solid evidence that cataract surgery reduces your risk of dementia. And you know what? It's the same. It's the social contact card being played again. If you don't hear well, if you don't see well, you're reducing the sensory information coming into your brain or you're struggling to make sense of it. There's a famous video that was released probably 10 years ago where a guy took iPods around to nursing homes and played music on them that the individual patients were known to have loved when they were younger. And some of the transformations in people's behavior were unbelievable. And of course, the documentary has a kind of sad ending because in the end, the nursing homes involved decided they couldn't afford iPods for the people living there. So those are very simple technologies. I've heard of a really interesting one for caregivers where you put on a, basically a VR helmet and it is designed to give the caregiver a sense of what it's like to be a person living with dementia. That's, I think, at the experimental stage right now. There is a big push for technology. People worry about robots and AI, right? There's pros and cons. But I've thought if I end up living with dementia and I have a robot, I say, I'd like to hear the Beatles' Rubber Soul album again. Can you play that for me? Bang, it happens. Could I order this for lunch today instead? Let's talk about the Stanley Cup finals. It doesn't even have to be humanoid, I don't think. I just think if there's a device that you could converse with and share ideas with, even if it's just mechanical, quote unquote, I don't see anything wrong with that. Certainly would have been helpful the last three years with COVID. A lot of folks living alone, isolated. You can only speculate as to what impact that will have had when we look 10 years down the road. But I'm haunted by those photographs, and I'm sure you've seen some of a resident in a nursing home at the window, that being the only way they could communicate with their family or loved ones. I could mention diet, although diet is not one of the 12 officially identified risk factors. But again, there's a growing body of evidence that suggests in fact, there was something just published two days ago, the Mediterranean diet, which is fish, not red meat, lots of lentils, chickpeas, good vegetarian diet, a little bit of red wine, that in some studies has had a significant impact on reducing dementia. The other thing, Peter, that most people don't talk about is that even if we're able to delay the onset by, let's say, five years, by addressing all of these risk factors. That's five years of a better life, a fuller life, let's say, for patients living with dementia. That's five years of less stress on caregivers. And that's five years less impact on the healthcare system. Delaying is a great goal. Preventing would be even better. Treatment would be probably even better than that. But let's take the opportunities we have right now. You mentioned the healthcare industry. What are some of the most pressing issues related to dementia and the healthcare industry that you see that could be addressed by policymakers and healthcare professionals? That's a deep question. How can we arrange it so that it's not just caregiving, which might be daily maintenance of one's life, 
eating, washing, and so on. But actual companionship, is there a way that we can provide that more effectively? I'll give you another example that I really like, although I didn't experience it myself. There's a dementia community in the Netherlands, and it works like this. Daughter comes to see her father. He's living with dementia. They go to the grocery store to get his favorite coffee. They go to the cash. This is all within this dementia community. He pulls out his handkerchief and offers it to the cashier. She takes it, opens the cash drawer, rummages around, gives him back his handkerchief as change. They take the coffee. They leave. He's not challenged. He's not criticized. He's not questioned. He's living his life. This is an elaborate community that requires pretty substantial investment and a lot of education to help people understand how you reduce the stigma around dementia. People have a negative reaction often when confronted with an individual living with dementia. And I think that's something that we have to address as well. I'm optimistic there'll be a pretty effective treatment maybe in 10 years, but not now. And the numbers are going to increase between now and then. We should be looking at this from every angle possible, better, more dementia-friendly behaviors, more dementia-friendly living. I'd like to thank Jay Ingram for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Thank you.